Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferrance.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 61. Great episode coming at you today. This week, we get into a ton of stuff. Things like the difference in experiences between being signed to a major label versus being independent, producing movies, leading teams, pitching your ideas, and even building a revolutionary DAW. So it's an eclectic one for sure. Don't miss it. But before we get into all of that, I wanted to talk a bit about valuing the process and embracing the journey. We talk a lot about setting goals in this show, sometimes maybe so much that it might appear that the most successful among us are living their entire lives just laser focused on their goals. People just get caught up trying to win, 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 like total Gary V hustle culture style, right? But what happens when you hit a goal or a milestone? How long was that actual moment of, quote, achieving that goal? Let's say you were involved in a number one record. Did you get a week of fulfillment? Or was it just the 10 seconds it took to check the billboard charts and see it? Or is it months of feeling like you've accomplished something? It could be any of those. There's no right or wrong answer there. And take it from someone who's worked on number one records, has sat in a theater and watched music they produce on the big screen, had Grammy nominations, hit podcast milestones, etc. All of those moments of accomplishment are fleeting. I actually had to pause while writing this to think about that list. Why? Because once those things happen, they've happened. Those accomplishments aren't bringing me constant fulfillment and pleasure. I keep working on new records and finding new projects to be a part of because that's what makes me happy. A lot of people will hit their goals and they'll think, that's it? Now what? And so they'll just set a new goal and they'll move on because like I said earlier, the moment of achieving a goal is short. It's quick. Win your Grammy, go up on stage, say thanks mom, go to the after party, and it's over. So hopefully you enjoyed getting there because that statue isn't going to bring you a lifetime of happiness and fulfillment. Which brings me to the point of this intro. Life is the journey. Success is created by the journey. And 99.9% of your life will be the journey. Getting awards, having money, releasing your songs, selling your startup, launching your product, whatever. All of those outcomes are just brief moments in time. Truly successful people value the journey. It's the process that drives them. Those are the people that you see hitting goal after goal after goal. You might see them and think, wow, is nothing ever enough for that person? Are they not grateful for what they've accomplished? And that's not it. It's not that they are obsessed with success and winning. It's that they are in love with the process. They find value in the process. The journey to get there is what's actually bringing them joy. That's why they keep doing it. The goals are just the outcome of them living the life they want. So, 
Do you value the process? Do you embrace the adversity? Do you get fulfillment from learning from your mistakes and getting better? You can't focus on the highs of an accomplishment and the lows of a failure. You have to focus on enjoying the adventures and lessons that occur along the way, win or lose. If you find value in the process, you won't feel like you need those energizing boosts that you get from successes, and you won't be so defeated by any missteps that occur along the way. So yes, set the goals, and yes, have the target, but find the inspiration in your life that drives you to live the journey instead of the roller coaster. Today's guest is award-winning filmmaker, composer, and entrepreneur, Gabe Cowan. Gabe has produced over 20 films, many of which have premiered at the major festivals. His film Cheap Thrills won the Audience Award at South by Southwest, and other notables include Bad Milo and They Call Us Monsters. Before producing movies, Gabe was a multi-platinum recording artist. He was in several bands, was signed to Geffen Records, toured the world, and contributed music to films like Scream 2 and worked with artists such as Jackson Brown, Ry Cooter, Robbie Robertson, and The Tower of Power. His current focus is solving audio for video by creating a streamlined solution to quickly and easily match music and effects with picture in a manner that sparks creativity. And he's doing that as the CEO of Audio Design Desk. So lots of topics, and I'm sure lots of tangents. This is going to be a fun one. Welcome to the show, Gabe Cowan. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing today? Excellent. Feeling good. Thank you for joining us. I know that you are probably very busy. Uh, CEO sounds busy to me whenever I hear that word. <laughs> <laughs> Such a funny term. I, I wanted to be called head honcho, but they wouldn't let me do it. Well, when you set up a company, you, don't, you, you get to pick whatever you want, right? Or you have to pick from the official titles. Yeah, well, I mean, there's some, you know, when you are building a startup, there's a lot of different voices in the corporate world and they have opinions and <laughs> you want to keep them happy because they write the checks. That makes sense. That makes sense. So I've talked to a past guest, Chris Gear, who I know you are a colleague with. Love Chris. And so I know a little bit about what you're doing with Audio Design Desk. And it's really impressive to me. And I understand like reviews from a lot of the tech mags and blogs and stuff are like, they're all like five out of five, 10 star things, right? You guys are doing some cool stuff. Yeah, the reviews, every single time they come out, usually we get a heads up like the day before, the night before, but not any indication of how the review is going to be. And every single time I like can't fall asleep, I'm panicking. I'm like, this is going to be the time where they, you know, really discover us. And uh, every single time it's been some, I'm like, mom, did you write this? You know, it's like <laughs> the reviews have been really incredible. And we keep winning these awards too. You know, last week we got the CES Innovator Award. And tomorrow we become, when does the podcast come out? It could be somewhere in the next month to two months, but we're, we're in November for the audience right now. We're doing this interview in November. I'll just say, and, and later this week, Fast Company is naming us one of the next big things in tech. And so there's just a lot going on that's, you know, pretty incredible. That is crazy. So obviously I want to talk about Audio Design Desk and why you would do something as crazy as try to build a DAW. But I think that... You've done a lot of stuff in music and film. I think your story kind of probably informs why you're doing what you're doing now. So let's go back in time. How'd you get into music and entertainment? What was what was your childhood like? Yeah, I have an 11-year-old who's applying now to seventh grade. And so actually yesterday I was at my old high school that she was looking at, which actually is probably where this story starts. Okay. Born and raised in Los Angeles, fifth generation Angelino went to a school called Crossroads where there was quite a lot of, it was an art school. So I was surrounded by 
musicians and filmmakers. And we did a lot of like plays. They let you do original plays, which was a big deal for us. And my high school band, a band called Comfort Station, we'd play at the Roxy and the Troubadour and things like that. MTV came out and did a little rockumentary on us, which is simultaneously really fun to watch and horribly embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) That was the beginning of, wow, this might be a career, like we might actually be able to do this as something as opposed to, you know, going to law school or something that's more, (laughs) more logical. That band broke up, but right after high school, I started playing in a band called Load. And that was one of those situations where really quickly we went from you know, writing our first couple songs to playing a big gig, a manager, a guy named uh, John Hartman, who had been the manager for like, I think Crosby, Stills and Nash and like all these big kind of older bands. This is of course, 30 years ago now, (laughs) or not quite 30 years ago, saw us and said, do you guys need a manager? I mean, this is at our first gig. And at our second gig, he brought a bunch of producers, these guys named the Rob Brothers, who owned Cherokee Studios. Are you old enough to remember Cherokee? Uh, I know that it's reopened, and I know people that have worked there, but I've never been. I think we had been a band for about six weeks. We had eight or nine songs, and suddenly we're in this incredible studio with these amazing producers. And the singer, um, a woman who's an incredibly talented musician, still plays music, has a band called The Bird and the Bee. Anara George is her name. Yeah. And her father is a guy named Lowell George who had a band called Little Feet. And so there was a lot of people at the time that kind of knew his band, but was realizing how talented Anara was on her own right. And, you know, very different kind of musical sensibility than Lowell. But so as a result, a lot of people kind of came to these sessions. And one guy named Van Dyke Parks came in, who's just this incredible producer he's worked with. I wish I had his resume. Van Dyke <laughs> Parks has worked with kind of basically everybody. And we said, well, will you stick around? And he's like, yeah. And so he ended up essentially producing these sessions with the Rob brothers just because he thought it was cool and had the time. And so he stuck with us for three or four days. And we recorded this demo that, you know, frankly, ended up being better than the album that, that, we, <laughs> that we got to do. We were all first year in college. So after that summer, you know, Anara went back to school. She was going to Emerson in Boston and I was going to CalArts and we were dating also. So we're like having this long distance love affair and I'm like flying out there and then coming back and trying to go, well, everybody's going, what's going on with the band? And that demo is starting to get more and more action. And when she came back, she ended up dropping out of school that semester. And so came back in January and... Very quickly, we got a call from John Hartman, that manager. I'm a huge Steely Dan fan. And he said, are you sitting down? I said, yeah, I was not sitting down. (laughs) And he said, Gary Katz, who produced all the Steely Dan records, heard your demo, and he wants to produce your record. And I did then immediately sit down. (laughs) I was so (laughs) overwhelmed. And within a couple of weeks, we were meeting with different record labels and ultimately a woman named Roberta Peterson at at Geffen Records heard the demo and she kind of gave us the pitch on what Geffen at the time, right? This is like 1996. So the internet is new. Napster is just about to become a thing. Music industry is just crashing forward into Napster. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They don't see it coming yet, right? They don't see Napster coming. And record labels had a really serious identity. 
right? When you're meeting with Atlantic and the types of artists that are over there and Geffen, who of course had had these huge kind of hair bands in the eighties, but now we're mid nineties and they're starting to transition. They had Beck, you know, Beck was kind of on the one side and Lisa Loeb was on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. We felt like we really liked what Beck was doing and really liked kind of their philosophy around music over there. I don't even know if David Geffen himself was actually still involved at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so we ended up signing this record deal back when record deals were, you know, many hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was like, great. I mean, I'm 19, you know, right. we're like just children, essentially. Totally. And got swept away into that and then went to New York to Gary Katz's studio, which was Steely Dan's studio. And so all of those guys are around. That experience was really bad. <laughs> Gary Katz, I guess I shouldn't say too many bad things about a person publicly, but the experience with our producer and the network around him was purely about money and not about art. And at the time, we were playing with a guy named Roger Manning, who had a band called The Jellyfish and then got signed with another band called Imperial Drag. He's now Beck's keyboardist, one of the okay. most talented musicians we've ever worked with. And so we wanted to bring Roger out with us because he was kind of the Billy Preston of our world, Billy Preston being the Beatles, you know, keyboardist. And Gary wouldn't let us do it. And we, in hindsight, realized it's because here was a guy that had more experience who would have seen through what was happening and... The system couldn't have taken quite as much advantage of, you know, these kids. I remember coming after the first week, we got our first bill. And I look at the bill for tape and the bill, right? It's back when you're recording on tape. Oh, and, yeah, right. And for the studio and for food and all this stuff. And I went to Gary and I said, we're not going to, we're going to be out of money. We have hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're going to end up, you know, wasting all this money. We should be back in LA recording at our studio, recording at the Rob Brothers studio where we could get it for very little. And he took me in this side room, literally the echo chamber that they had at the studio. <laughs> little guy, I'm six foot two. The guy's probably like five foot six. But he's so intimidating and he just starts pointing his finger at me. Why are you looking at this stuff? You want to ruin this thing? You want to ruin your career? And I was like, no, I'm just trying to look at the bottom line and what's <laughs> going to happen here. Like, not at all. And so I got was very intimidated. But at the end of the thing, what they did is they didn't give us visibility into a lot of the costs that they back-ended. So in the very final bill... We were over budget. Oh. One of the rules was anything we didn't spend on the album, we would get to keep. Right, so right. I guess I had a little self-interest in looking at those numbers. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, the more important thing than the money and all of that is that because the system that we were in was so focused on money, not art, we just didn't record an album that was equal to the inspiration of the group. Mm. And so we ended up using a few of those Rob Brother recordings at Cherokee Studios on the album. And those are arguably still the best ones. There was a couple of good ones on there. Yeah. Anyway, so that was the bit you asked where it started. So <laughs> it started there and then we got to tour and <laughs> I'll just tell a quick story about touring. So we played with a band opening for a band called UFO. Have you ever heard of those guys? I have, I have. UFO, lights out in London. <laughs> and we're like, you know, a female kind of light rock band. There was some heavier stuff, but we are the wrong group to open for UFO. <laughs> and at our first gig, which was in Palo Alto, it's about 2,000 people. 
we come out on stage, we're playing our set, and the audience starts chanting, UFO, UFO, like overwhelming the music that we're playing with their chant. And so we all look at each other on stage, and it was actually a kind of a great moment where we nodded, and somehow we were all in sync. We knew what needed to happen. And the drummer started playing with the chant, UFO, U, boom, ah, boom, boom, ah. And we just started, boom, 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 and we kind of won them over by improvising along with their chant. And then we very quickly rewrote our set list on stage. It was got together in the front and we just put the heavier songs and it ended up working out. But meanwhile, we were touring by ourselves too. And, you know, playing, when we played in Los Angeles, we're from Los Angeles. So we would play at, you know, places where we'd have a few hundred, sometimes several hundred people. But when you're touring and no one knows who you are, I mean, I remember our first gig on the tour was in Arizona and there was four people there and two of them worked at the place. So, (laughs) okay, we're going to get them one, there's more people on stage than there are in the audience. But it it was a fun experience. And then as we started to record our second record, oh no, I'm forgetting this guy's name. He's a big, great producer. Tony Berg. I don't know if you know that name. Tony Berg. I know of, yeah, yeah. Now we're getting to like late 90s. I think it's like 97, 98. And he had just done The Counting Crows and a couple of bands like that. And he came in and he was so wonderful in terms of his focus on the songs, right? He could see that we were all really solid musicians. Like, again, in the 80s and early 90s, it was a little bit about musical gymnastics, right? Like, (laughs) you know, Billy Sheehan was like a very popular bass player who was like playing with two hands. And, you know, Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and all being you know, Eddie Van Halen sort of wannabe. Uh, We were in that camp as musicians, but playing lighter music. Tony really helped us focus on what's the idea behind the song? What are you trying to say? What are you trying to do with this song? And it was so helpful to get us out of, you know, playing a G minor seven, sharp five, add nine, you know, chord and like going, well, how complex can we be? Right. To just centralize the focus on... What's at the center of this? What is that melody? How do we ornament that melody in a great way? The Beatles being the highlight example of guys who weren't unbelievably sophisticated musical gymnastics wise. Yeah. But when it came to ornamenting around a melody, I think they still have it. I can't wait for this Peter Jackson documentary, by the way. (laughs) Oh, I didn't realize he was, is he doing a Beatles doc? Oh my God, he got 54 hours of never before seen footage of them recording the Let It Be album, which they did in three weeks. Oh, they wrote all the songs. They put it all to the whole record. They put together in three weeks. George Harrison quits the band. Yoko Ono's there. Right. It's never before seen footage. And there's 130 hours of audio. So yeah, it's going to be a great three-part documentary. That's awesome. I'm definitely, yeah, that's going on my list when that comes out. (laughs) I have to ask you, it sounds like y'all were like just thrown into the whirlwind, just like sucked up into like the major label vacuum. But it must have been like two totally different experiences making record one and record two. It sounds like complete different approaches. How did that feel for you guys as artists to compare those two producers back to back and those experiences? 
Well, we didn't end up recording the second record. We went along that journey for a moment and we've sort of realized that, you know, Inara wanted to do some different things and Robin, who's our guitarist, who wrote a lot of the songs, wanted to do sort of more pop stuff. Like, he was this great pop song. Everything had a hook. There was always a hook, always that memorable thing. Yeah. And Inara was more interested in something that was in like 11.8 or, you know, 7.4 <laughs> or you know, things that were a little more interesting still had hooks, but in a different way. And so we ended up uh, uh, splitting up. And that's what led to, in fact, the day we broke up, I went to a jam session with a friend of mine named Sam Music, who's a partner in Audio Design Desk. Oh, wow. And his buddy, David Arquette, was there. And we started playing music together. And that day, I mean, it's the day that the band broke up, is the day that I start playing with these guys. <laughs> and that's what led to, you know, all the stuff with Scream and doing those soundtracks and kind of getting into that world, which was a little bit more... You know, we were able to drive our own careers a little bit more mm, than yeah. when we were on a major label because now all of a sudden Pro Tools is coming out and there was something called the Darwin, which was a kind of a hardware digital audio workstation. And so we didn't need to go to a big studio. We just had to find a place that sounded great, buy a couple microphones. And of course, we got Roger Manning, <laughs> got him back <laughs> yeah. and started recording, you know, with that team. That's cool. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So were you doing like score composition stuff or song stuff for some of these movies? Songs. Okay. So songs for the soundtrack albums. Okay, cool. And so then how long did that road go where you were on your own making music for film? A couple of years, I think we started playing at the end of 98. And David Arquette at the time was really this rising star. When we started playing music together, it was so fun because Sam Music is an incredible drummer. He ultimately became a sound designer. And like I said, as a partner in Audio Design Desk. But he's a really innovative, special kind of drummer. And I had been playing with him since the eighth grade. Oh, wow. And so all of a sudden now, you know, it's years later, we're whatever it is, four or five years out of high school. And David wasn't somebody, I didn't know, you know, his acting career or anything, but maybe something along the lines of a month into playing with him, I went and saw Scream. And all of a sudden his career was just skyrocketing. So, you know, I mean, he was at the time in that group with like Leonardo DiCaprio and all of these like really you know, emerging uh, actors. He was blowing up then. Just crazy. I mean, he was being offered all of these incredible roles. I remember him, you know, looking at scripts that became huge, huge movies and <laughs> passing on some things that became like, you know, incredible <laughs> benchmark films. But as a result, you know, being in David Arquette's band, you know, attracted a lot of really interesting producers. A guy came in and worked with us for probably six months named Robert Carranza, who now I think has won six or seven Grammys. 
And then, of course, Roger Manning was with us kind of the whole time. And we had a lot of really terrific musicians step in. I remember Charlize Theron, who, you know, now is a huge celebrity, but at the time was this young, you know, emerging actress, came in and played castanets on on one of our songs. <laughs> uh, you know, there's this kind of rolling group of different young actors who were interested in music and wanted to be doing stuff. And we owned this studio. So it was a really incredible time. And then we also got huge gigs out of that. We played something called The Big Day Out, where we essentially opened for the Foo Fighters. I mean, we were playing awesome. for thousands and thousands of people and just all on the back of David's fame. But we were actually playing really cool music, like innovative, aggressive kind of like the final stage of what the Beastie Boys was doing, like hard-hitting, okay. you know, heavy bass, yeah. and lots of rapping and kind of then melodies for the choruses, that kind of stuff. And that's what led to all of the Scream soundtrack stuff and all of that. There was certainly a nepotism piece in the Screams after Wiggles <laughs> David's in the movies, <laughs> but also the songs that we got on there, I, I still think are worthy. Cool. That's awesome. It is funny. I've been in LA, like we were talking before, for like 15 or 16 years, and I've found myself in like, you know, different circles of people, but like the Hollywood world where like you're in a band and then your friend is in a movie and then it just kind of like it piles up and you find like when you live in Los Angeles that you interact with so many people that you would never expect just, you know, like on the norm. It's very funny. It's really great. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Only here. Only here. Only here. Yeah. And I don't really know how it is now. At the time, there's something that was so seductive about that world, you know, that I was really attracted to, but also there was something really ugly about it. And ultimately, <laughs> I didn't like it. Like, I feel like I kind of stepped, it was more than toe in the water, right? It was like halfway yeah. wading in the water and you're doing these photo shoots with huge people and you're kind of like feeling like, oh my God, my career's taking off. And like, but ultimately, like at the time, the world was filled with a lot of drugs and a lot of just like really ugly behavior. David was always a sweetheart. Like the David is like, I'm still friends with him. Great person. Also didn't get as attracted because he comes from his whole family is famous. But for me, not, you know, knowing other people in that world, I had visibility and was maybe even more attracted to than David. Yeah. You know, being around that. But at the end of the day, I didn't like it. The one thing I will say, though, is <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of things that we got to do that were pretty fun. One of them being an incredible tour through Europe. And as you know, like American audiences and European audiences are very different. Yeah. European audiences are engaged. They care about the musicianship. They're like showing up not just to dance and party, but also to like have an interactive experience. And so... We played in Spain for, I think, a month or maybe even a little bit longer. Oh, cool. Uh, we had a residency there at a place called Chesterfields. And then we played in France. And that was just a blast. I mean, it was so fun being part of that world. Also, going on tour, which I did with Load 2. But, um, you know, you're getting paid to do your favorite thing. Yeah. And at night, you're the star of the party. And all day, you're free. So <laughs> if you're in Europe, you're like, oh, well, I'm going to go to this museum or I'm going to go see this thing or I'm going to go walk down the street. You know, you're having this really rich experience because all day you're available to do whatever. And then you just got to show up at 9 p.m., you know, and play for an hour and a half. Which is so challenging, you know, just playing some music. <laughs> it's it's so stressful. Totally. Yeah. Well, so then how'd you end up not doing this anymore? How'd you get into not being in bands? 
Yeah, I got hired. Let's see. Let me think about it. So I was, <laughs> as a bass player, one of the things, so I, bass was my main instrument. And you get a lot of opportunity because everybody wants to be the singer and the lead guitar player. And I was a pretty good bass player. So I got to play with, like you said, you know, Ry Cooter and Jackson Brown and the Tower of Power and Robbie Robertson. Robbie Robertson was actually my very first gig. I was 18 years old. He sort of saw me playing in high school at a high school event Damn. and was like, I want that guy to, to come in and play bass on my record. He was doing the score for a movie called Jimmy Hollywood, which was Barry Levinson's follow-up to Rain Man, if you remember the movie Rain Man. Yeah, yeah. So Rain Man was this huge success, incredible. Barry Levinson is like going to be the next, you know, Francis Ford Coppola or whatever. And then he did this movie called Jimmy Hollywood, which no one went to see. <laughs> but the score actually is really great. And Robbie did the score for it. And it was through that that I got to work with the Tower of Power and all of those other, you know, incredible musicians. Eric Clapton was around. You know, I mean, it was just an incredible, that was the opposite of the actors, right? Being around these cool musicians who, yes, there's a celebrity there, but ultimately it is about the art. Yeah. And it was always about, let's sit down. And Eric came and picked up a acoustic guitar. And next thing I know, like, we're all jamming and Robbie's playing on the same amp that he had in the last waltz, if you've ever seen that movie. And you're kind of looking around going, oh my God, like, what this, am I doing? Is, this is incredible. But so through after all of those experiences, I got hired. A woman had heard some of my music. I was writing a lot. And she asked if I wanted to score a film for a guy named Roger Corman, a producer. Yeah. And I said, sure, I'd love to score a film. I didn't know anything about how to score a movie. <laughs> and at the time, the technology was so, you know, compared to what it is today, you're putting a videotape into a videotape machine striped with SIMPTY time code yep. that you're locking to an ADAT player, oh, God. which then goes into the computer and literally every time you wanted to do a just a punch-in, just a little thing, it would take one minute for the things to all sync up so that you could actually see the video and the thing. I mean, at the time, it was like, oh, my gosh, I can do this at home. It's incredible. But it was pretty crazy. So we scored this movie called Take It to the Limit. And Roger Corman, if you know anything about him, I think he's produced over 400 movies. Oh, yeah. He's responsible for the careers of, like, James Cameron and Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and Jack Nicholson and, you know, Robert De Niro. Everybody got their start with Roger and me. <laughs> and one of the things that Roger does is he just wants everybody to be open, available to everything happening. So I was invited to come into the edit bay and I had taken film classes in high school. I was always really interested in film. And I was making, so I asked at some point, like, is it okay if I make some, she's like, yeah, you can make suggestions. That's what we want. That's why this is open to yeah. you. We want it to be the best it can be. And as I was giving suggestions, he invited me to make more suggestions. And then at the end of the whole experience, he said, if you want me to write you a recommendation, I think you should go to film school. I think you are a great musician, but it seems like you're a filmmaker too. And so he wrote me a really nice recommendation and I ended up going back to get my master's degree in film directing to CalArts. Oh, cool. First to USC. And then ultimately I found that USC wasn't kind of the right environment for me. One of the things they do is they own your movies if you make movies at USC. And I was uh -huh. like, wait, no, I want to, what? No, like, it's a little sketch. I'm paying you. <laughs> yeah. I should be able to use the facilities. So I went to CalArts and I ended up connecting with a guy at CalArts who was also really ambitious, a guy named John Suits 
who I made 18 of the 20 something movies uh, with and young, super talented, like really positive, lots of energy. My final assignment the first year was to make a half hour short and we shot it and edited it in a weekend. And at the end of the weekend, we're exhausting, like eating Domino's pizza. <laughs> and we kind of look at each other. This is probably May. And we, we said, well, wait, if you just do the math, if we could do a half hour in a weekend, we could shoot a feature in a week. And so we said, let's do that. And the next week, we wrote a script and we wrote the script in one week. And then we just started casting. And we put this movie together called Breathing Room that we went and we shot two cameras. Each of us had a camera. Each of us were, you know, we're doing the editing. We're doing the whole thing. But by the time it was done, Roger actually, who I was still in touch with, suggested that I find out who the international distributors were through a book. Now it's, of course, online. But at the time, it was too hard to find online. There was a book called The International Distributors Guide. She said, write a letter, a personal letter to each one of these distributors saying, I love what you did with this movie, that movie, and the other thing. I wonder if you'd consider breathing room for your, you know, for your repertoire. We ended up getting all of these responses. They watched the movie, you know, we're sending out the DVDs. We got all of these offers and we made the movie for 15 grand. At the end of the thing, we, we went to AFM, which is a big event in Los Angeles where you go to sell movies. Yeah. And at the end of AFM, our sales rep said, I have good news and bad news said, well, what's the bad news? He says, Israel didn't buy your movie. And I said, well, what's the good news? And he puts down the his spreadsheet with each territory. He says, everywhere else did. And you were like, oh my God, this movie is now that made for 15 grand is going to be in every language and every country. And for 15 grand, I think we ended up making like $350,000 and we're still in school and we're like, oh my God, this is good. Literally, we started sending each other pictures of yachts because that's <laughs> apparently what rich people do. <laughs> so, like, it's an ongoing well, joke. It's so easy. <laughs> we then took the money and I went to Rwanda to do a documentary on reconciliation and forgiveness. John uh, made a movie, which I produced on the effects of alcoholism on a family and neither of those movies sold. So we we got our, we learned our lesson. So we started going, okay, well, we'll do one for us and one for them. So we do a, a movie that we thought of as an art film or something that was really intellectually stimulating. Right. And then the next one, we would do something that was more along the lines of a horror movie or something to sell. I know that your listeners are so interested in career paths. One of the big benchmarks for us is we made a lot of movies and each one had a different goal. So the first goal was, can we do it? Can we make something that's 90 minutes that we can sell that's entertaining? And we did make a horror movie with Breathing Room. Then the second and third things were, can we do things that like really legitimately interest us, you know, intellectually, which is why I went to Rwanda, which is why he was exploring alcoholism and the effects on a family. The third question was, can we make something for not a lot of money that looks big budget? So right as we graduated from, you know, getting our master's degrees at CalArts, we literally from the graduation went to the airport, got on an airplane, went to Martha's Vineyard shot the first ever truly independent film on the red camera. So it's like a 4K movie. Oh, and, wow. you know, how are we going to get aerial shots? Drones weren't available. Then we found a guy who had a World War II biplane who strapped, you know, the camera into the plane and we'd, you know, get these aerial shots. And then we got, you know, a lot of visual effects through, you know, just through people that were trying to prove themselves at the time you know, not a lot of people could do that stuff. Computers were just getting fast enough to do kind of 3D characters and things like that. And so we made this movie called Growth 
that was really built. We made it for 300 grand, really built to show that we could make something that looked big budget for not a lot of money. And through that movie, then the next movie that we made was something called Extracted. And the goal on that one is what changed everything for us. The goal on that one was, can we make something good? Right, where it's like, can we make something at all? Can we make something intellectually stimulating? Can we make something that looks big budget? Now, if we're going to make something good, we have to slow down. We have to really focus on the script. And, you know, we need to take our time. As a so for our audience, we had a, our first ever technical issue where we had to drop off. So we'll just jump back into it. Gabe, a lot of what you've talked about, and I don't know if like my regular listeners have caught this, but I feel like a lot of the things that you've done in your life so far are like really right in line with this podcast. It sounds like every time you're doing something, you're setting a goal that you're not really like being affected by failure. There's a thing that I'm really trying to push on my listeners and you have it. And I'm just curious to know if you know, like what made you approach your career and all your changes this way by setting goals and hitting them and saying, hey, how can we push farther than this? Because that's what I'm taking away from a lot of what you've said. Yeah, there's two thoughts. One is I'm lazy. <laughs> and so in order to fight the laziness, I need to set goals that other people know about so that I'm accountable. So for example, I will call up 20 actors and I will tell them I've got this incredible script. I want to do a reading of the script in three weeks. And I haven't written a word, but I've set the reading and so I better write that script. I've got three weeks to write it because there's 20 <laughs> actors showing up at my house. So this is the kind of thing that really helps fight the laziness <laughs> and turn laziness into, into motivation. Yeah. So I often think of these things as like a trick, a trick to get things done yeah. by saying, okay, we're, you know, we're going to go do this thing. Or then setting those goals for each movie, like I was saying when we got cut off, you know, the first couple of movies were, can we do it at all? Can we tell a 90-minute story? Then it was, can we sh do something that looks big budget for not a lot of money? And then it was, can we do something good? And that's really where the whole career, the film career changed because we slowed things down and we still made it for not a lot of money, but we really focused on the script, uh, really focused on bringing in the, you know, the most talented people that was slowly instead of let's put it together and just do it. Right. And then that movie, we got into something called the Independent Film Program, IFP. Sorry, I know your question was about the motivation. <laughs> so I, I'm just going to continue on this thread and then no, I'll jump back. No, go for it. You're good. So we got into the independent film program and through that, they sent the movie to Toronto, which is a huge, really popular, incredible festival. But the timing wasn't right. They had already let, all, they'd already given all the slots away. But Colin, who was the head programmer for our section there, contacted us and said, I love this movie. I wish I could put it in. Let me see if I can give it a thumbs up to another festival that I think would be interested, which was South by Southwest. He sent it to them. They were interested. And that was our first time premiering a movie at a major festival. That's cool. And that's when everything shifted because all of a sudden, you know, we'd always tried to go after, you know, bigger names in our movies, but no one's interested because who are you guys? Right. But once you have a movie that's well-reviewed, that's in a festival, the agents take your calls. And in that next movie, which was a movie we actually built, invented a 3D rig, which kind of ties into audio design desk. Like we were always trying to build new things and create new 
whatever we needed for whatever the story needed. Yeah. In this case, we wrote something that 3D was very popular at the time. All the 3D televisions were selling. And so we needed a 3D rig, but they were too expensive. So we invented one and it totally worked. Like the 3D in this movie, <laughs> it's called Static, is great. And we reached out to the agencies and we got a guy named Milo Ventimiglia, who was a much bigger, and at the time he was on a show called Heroes. Now he has that show, um, Oh yeah, This Is Us. And I also had just been, you know, played like Rocky Balboa's son and Rocky Balboa. He was like, you know, a name, a namey person. And we got a woman named Sarah Paxton and another woman named Sarah Shahi. So suddenly we're working with that kind of next level of actors. And we realized that we were in a position where actors want to work and they also want to sleep in their beds. And <laughs> most of the time when they work for money, they make a lot of money on all of these television shows and all of these movies but they have to go to Georgia or New Mexico or, you know, uh, Michigan was big at the time. It's not as big now. And so they don't get to sleep at home. So they would take a pay cut. And most of these actors worked for $100 a day if we could make a script that was good with characters that were interesting and, you know, allow them to sleep in their bed. So that became our trick. And we, you know, Marissa Tomei and Sam Rockwell and Sean William Scott and, you know, did a movie with Courtney Cox. Like all of these, you know, sort of big celebrities were attracted to that idea. And that's how we, you know, made the movies that you talked about at the beginning of your, you know, the preamble here. Cool. But again, it was a trick. It was like, oh, we see what they want. They want to work. Their agents are required to throw them the red meat of here's a job. It's not for money, but the act, that's what they wanted to do. And so that's how we ended up making all of these movies and then going on this very quick path to being trusted producers who, you know, companies knew would deliver. So we would get the money fronted instead of having to scramble to raise the money. And that ended up being kind of the situation that I was in as I stopped making as many movies and started focusing on Audio Design Desk. That's cool. So let's do Audio Design Desk. So my biggest question, and probably what most people are asking is, why go into the world of DAWs, this place that like is just filled with internet opinions and like software tribalism. And then you're like, hey, I've got an idea. I'm like going for it. Like, and we'll have to talk more about, you know, the technical aspects of it because then I think people understand why. But, but why? You know, there's that great <laughs> line about a small group of passionate people are the ones that change the world. It's the only thing that ever has. And there's also the great line of people do incredible things because they don't know that they can't. Oh, I love that. Right. That's your written quote. I'm calling it right now. That's what's going on your on your Instagram post. <laughs> All right, perfect. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that was the thing. The realization came from, I was doing the trailer for a movie that we made called 400 Days, which we had gotten this great deal with sci-fi. And so, uh, you know, sci-fi is an NBC universal and suddenly we're getting into that world and it was like, you know, a big deal for us. So I wanted to make sure, I always on every movie want to make sure the sound's great. But in this case, it needed to be great and aggressive because that's what that audience wanted. And I'm in Pro Tools trying to place a rise to, you know, to lead to the final title of 400 Days. And I'm jumping out onto the desktop because in Pro Tools, you have to double click each sound to listen to it. And I want to just hit the space bar and click the down arrow. And so I'm listening to the rises and you're realizing it's this guessing game where you're like, I think that'll work. You drag it in, you got to trim the rise, move it to the right spot, untrim it. Now I'm listening to it for the first time. It's not the right thing. I delete it, I go out. And I, I ended up screaming at the computer, like, why, 
why is it so hard? And I realized, oh my gosh, it's not your fault. I love Pro Tools. It's not Pro Tools' fault. Pro Tools isn't built to do this. Pro Tools is a big tape machine. It is. None of these systems are built, whether it's Premiere or Logic, Final Cut Pro, uh, all the rest, are built to create sound for sync, sound for picture, sound for podcasts, you know, sound for plays. It hadn't been thought through. They're all being repurposed to do that. And I think a lot of people felt like, well, I can make it do it. So, okay, it's a little slow, but I'm getting paid by the hour or whatever. Right, right. Manually place all of these footsteps or manually place those rises or whatever. And I just thought, wait a minute, I'm always surrounded by whiteboards. Oh, I don't think you can quite see mine, but I always I, have I whiteboards. Can. I can see it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I um, started writing a schematic of how you would fix that problem. What if you did build a system that was built to do this instead of repurposing something? Yeah. And the first thing that I realized you need is a sync marker. Every sound has a place where it's meant to sync to visuals or sync to one another. And what I didn't know at the time, but realized a couple of weeks later is if every sound in a system has a sync marker, replacing those sounds with alternates can happen instantly and always in sync because they all will maintain that sync marker. So a door slamming is an example. There's a creak usually before creak slam. Well, it's the slam where you're going to be syncing the sound to the visual 99% of the time. Footsteps, we don't think about it, but what you actually hear is heel-toe. But what you almost always see in the visuals is the toe. That's what you're syncing to. So what you can do now that we've built, you know, we have 35, almost 40,000 sounds that are built this way, is you can perform in real time while you're watching the visuals. So you can place those footsteps or add that Foley or add music or sound is that you can do everything that has to do with sound. And because of the sync marker and another thing that we call sonic intelligence, which without going too into the weeds, basically gives each sound 60 identifying characteristics. Are you light or dark? Are you synthetic or organic? How intense are you? How complex are you? If you know all of this information, you've built a system that actually understands sound like the whole world of sound. Yeah. It understands music, it understands sound design, sound effects, all of it. And so whatever your sonic goals are, the system can help you achieve those goals. The one other piece that I'll say, and I know your question was, why did we build a DAW? <laughs> but the one other piece that I'll say is, where we are now, Ableton, I think, is probably the most advanced of the, you know, at least was built around a different idea than all the other digital audio workstations. Yeah. Every other digital audio workstation was like, this is a tape machine. This is what each track on a tape machine will look like. And I'm going to let you edit those things. And then later they were like, and here's a mixing board. And this is what a mixing board looks like with faders and knobs. And it was all based on analog existing gear. Yeah. And the Ableton guys came in and they said, but wait a minute. Loop generated music, dance music, but also songs are built in sections and sections are built out of parts and parts are built in an exact number of beats and bars. And as a result, that idea of clip-based music generation changed the face. I mean, those guys made $100 million last year. Like, you know, changed the face of how we make music. And so they're the one company that I'm aware of that really had a new idea that took off. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do too. Like we're sort of got the Ableton idea, like if you're making music with audio design desk, 
but it's got something new because it has this replacement mechanism and the system's paying attention to what you like. And so over time, it gains confidence in what it thinks you'll like. So, oh, this, my user didn't choose these things. Here's the common metadata and all those things, but they keep choosing these things. And here's the common metadata and the things they do choose. So it's kind of putting together a idea of, of what it thinks you'll like. I say this because we have a replacement mechanism. So not... I don't like that drumbeat. Nope, give me a different one. Give me a different one. And then you're starting to build off a drumbeat. I don't like that baseline. Give me a different one. Give me a different one. So I think that if we had known exactly how hard it would be, maybe we wouldn't have gotten into it because <laughs> we didn't know that we can't. But now that we're this far down the road, we have a system that, you know, really, at least for me as a user, really is magical. It can either focus so that I'm looking for this specific idea. I want it to sound exactly like this and I can use some of the features to with intensity, complexity, lightness, darkness, all of these different parameters to say, I want to focus it in and narrow down the sound to be this. But what I really love is it'll inspire me. So if I say, you know what? I don't know exactly what I want, but I need a rise there or I need a hit there. I need a drone. I want a drum beat. I'm building a song. I could just start instantly swapping through things in real time, you know, keeping the flow going. And that's what's really, I think, special and fun about our system. It's super cool. I mean, for our audience, you know, that may not be uh, familiar with like sound effects, right? So like the first thing that uh, a sound effects person will do is they'll go through and they'll they'll spot the whole thing. They'll mark all the things that they need. So you, you're in something like Pro Tools with all these markers, and then you have to sort through, like Gabe said, all of these sounds and then choose the right footsteps for the right people and the door slams and all that. But I was having a chat with Chris Gear, who works with you on this, and he was kind of just giving me a demo. And the thing that like blew my mind is that I thought of it as like, if I was a film composer and I have a piece of music in front of me, you can load things onto the QWERTY keyboard, essentially. And feel free to interrupt me if I if I stray into things that are incorrect. And you could basically watch that cue down and on your keyboard, just drop in like riser. I want a drone. I want something loop to come in here. And you can like immediately in real time, build the shape of where you want your piece of music to go and then go back and nitpick over what riser it was or what impact it was. And just the like, I don't know, just watching him just drop music in. I was like, holy shit, I've never seen anything like this. I like, I've, I want to show me more. Tell me more, Chris. Tell me more. So <laughs> that's why I was like, I got to have you on the show because I don't think everybody needs to go and watch videos on the website because I think that really the visual when you see somebody work in it, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's different. That's really cool. So I just wanted to compliment you on on that. It's it's really awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it is a different idea and it works. So I think that's what keeps us going. You know, Chris has been an extraordinary partner in building a lot of this stuff. And our lead programmer is a guy named Ryan Francesconi, who um, is a terrific musician. I mean, played solo at Carnegie Hall, like produces <laughs> Joanna Newsom's records, if you know Joanna Newsom. Like, but he's also an incredible programmer. And it's true that building a DAW, I think what we the main thing we didn't realize when we started is what the expectations would be. When you start something like this, everything down the line needs to work or people start using it and they're like, your thing's broken. So <laughs> for example, something that we've been refining the last several weeks is making sure every single audio unit works in Audio Design Desk. Well, every audio unit, some of them are written in juice, other written in seat. Like there's 
10 different languages. They're all talking to the, there's not one protocol where it's just like plugins work. And I guarantee you over at Logic or Ableton or at those other companies, they have a team that's working on, you know, just that piece of the program. Yeah. We have, we're a little company, which I take pride in too. Like one of the things that we really try to do as a user of Pro Tools, I always felt like a number, like they would never take a suggestion from me. They hardly would get back to me when I had a technical issue. <laughs> Not unless you pay. <laughs> Again, I love the product. I still use Pro Tools all the time. I think the product is really powerful and great, but I don't think that they know that I'm a person. And one thing about being a small company and being able to kind of create our culture is we have a contact us button in the application and you will actually contact us. That's awesome. And every single time we're contacted, I mean, you know, we're, we have about 14,000 uh, users now, we get back to them. And a lot of the things that are in the program and that are on the roadmap came from ideas from our clients. That's exactly what we want. We're trying to build a useful tool that will speed you up so you can take more work and also so that you aren't so bored. You know, like <laughs> so much of the stuff that we do as musicians, as sound designers, as sound effects artists is manual. And you know, the sound effects thing is the most obvious one because you literally are chopping up the, even if you record them yourselves as a Foley artist, you're still chopping the footsteps and manually placing them. Yeah. That's not fun. <laughs> so we're trying to make it fun. Well, you also think about like, you know, composers, so many people work from templates and they have their massive composer templates and they're generating the same type of stuff. So it's like to go into this kind of random, randomness meets template-ness to make up a word, mm-hmm. I think is a cool space because that's an, one of the other things that Chris showed me was just like randomizing things and you're like, well, yeah, you're getting something that you wouldn't have normally done when you go and just like swap a loop, you know? It's so powerful. It's so cool. Like as a musician, I can pick up a guitar, play to a click track, like a little idea. And then I can be like, give me a drum beat. And then I start cycling. Sometimes I'm like, give me a rock drum beat. But a lot of times I'm like, just give me a drum beat. And I never would have thought, oh, that tabla beat or that Latin beat would go great against it. It's just not something I would have created because I only have this wider periphery. Yeah, That's part of the magic of the system is just giving you new ideas and hopefully inspiring you. It does that for me. I don't want to claim that it will do that for every user, but (laughs) that's my experience. That's cool. So I wanted to ask, you mentioned roadmap. When you started this, you know, and this might go back to what you've learned over the years making films as well. And like I said, you're a goal setter. Where the roadmap is today, is that where the roadmap was when you started? Or is it like just crazy different than it was a year ago? Is it constantly you're reshaping and moving the bar further? You know, I love the question. So the way that it started on that whiteboard was solving audio for video. At the time, I didn't have the thought this will also solve audio for other things. So that was a process of realization is like, I wasn't thinking about how big loop generated, you know, music is or loop inspired music. Yeah. That's a big deal. When you look at Splice and Loop Cow and Lander and all the rest, like it's a lot of people that make music that way. And if you do it in Audio Design Desk, I'm telling you, it's infinitely better than the process of manually dragging one loop at a time into live, which is what a lot of people do or into FL Studio or into Logic, like If you drag all of your splice loops into Audio Design Desk, 
We'll analyze them in two seconds, and you can just instantly be swapping them out. It'll stretch it to the right time. It'll pitch shift it to the right pitch. And so that wasn't on the roadmap originally, but there was a, I'm, I'm somebody that builds decks all the time. It's just how my brain works. Like in order <laughs> to get it out, I have to build a, a pitch deck. Yeah. And it's fun. Originally, the name of the application was EDL uh, from Edit Decision List because we were coming from, you know, from visuals. And so that very first EDL 1.0 has a series of slides and a series of features. And most of those basic features are still at the core of what Audio Design Dust does. But I did not realize that we would have to spend a month and a half getting AAF to work. You know, I didn't realize that we would, you know, to get that logic reads a different form of XML than, you know, Reaper. Uh, like oh, no. Those are things that we didn't anticipate. How many people are on your team? There's 12 people on the team. Okay. Two kind of lead programmers that are working every day to refine a big thing that we're working on now is MIDI implementation. We have a pretty big roadmap ahead. I'd say that the most exciting thing for me is that the program now really integrates well with other DAWs. So if you're a Pro Tools user, it's not a plugin, but it functions kind of like a plugin. Like you can connect Audio Design Desk and any other DAW and they're working, whatever's in the foreground becomes the leader, the other one's the follower. You know, in other words, if you press play in Audio Design Desk, it'll play Logic or Pro Tools or Reaper or whatever you're in, oh, okay. Cubase and vice versa. Kind of like a rewire type connection. Kind of like rewire, like our own. Your own version. That same idea. And ultimately we'll have a bridge That'll be just a plugin you pull up in, uh, you know, in Pro Tools or whatever you use, and it'll open up Audio Design Desk and the link that way. Right now, it takes about thirty seconds. You do have to click a couple of buttons right. to make that connection, but it's really, really easy. And same with like Splice, like importing Splice loops. Splice has this kind of, you know, they strip their sounds of all their metadata, so all we have to go from is what the file looks like and the naming convention, which is pretty all over the place, but we cracked the code. So now you can drag in your loops from anywhere and our system will work with them. So becoming that kind of in-between tool that really works with your tools is where we are now. And I think that that's, you know, so exciting because I'm somebody that uses other tools. Yeah. And right now we don't have full-on MIDI so that you can play all your keyboards. But if you're using it in conjunction with Logic, use your keyboards over there, use the randomization and all of the power of Audio Design Desk on its side and just use them at the same time. Yeah, no, that's so cool. I wish that listeners had like a preview of this before we got to the conversation because everything that you're talking about, I've seen happen. So I'm like, I know it's so cool, it's so cool. But uh, so you were kind of hinting in that last little bit, like how you would use it in, in a music production workflow, which is where most of the audience for the show is in music production. They should be checking this thing out. It, it is a viable music production tool, despite the fact that it might look like more of a sound design scoring tool, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different use cases for musicians, I think. Do you have a set, like what kind of musicians we're talking to in your audience? A lot of electron, a lot of Ableton users. I love what Ableton does. I mean, first of all, I think that <laughs> DigiDesign at the time, Avid now, made a big mistake. They gave away Ableton LT or whatever I remember with their that. system. Yeah, and that I converted. I mean, I remember going, oh my God, this is so cool. This is so powerful. And you know, I had used Pro Tools for 10 years at the time. And 
in one night, I was like, bye-bye Pro Tools. Hello, Ableton. And for years, <laughs> I just used it. And like I said earlier, they are the one company that had a new idea and executed it well. And also the way they taught me to use the program still today is inspiring. The way that they had their help features and all of that kind of stuff. What Audio Design Desk will do that Ableton doesn't do is it automates that process of looking at and categorizing all of your loops. So uh, we understand BPM, key, you know, a genre, something that we call type and subtype. And as a result, when you're wanting to swap things out or see how things might mix and match together in different ways, all of that experience is immediate, as opposed to in Ableton, where it's still pretty quick, it is still manual where you're kind of dragging a thing in, you're checking it out, you have to stop it. We don't make you stop. You can just keep it all in the flow. It'll all stretch. It'll all work right away. But another use case that I love as a musician is building a beat out of, let's say, you know, hats, kicks, and snares. And then taking my randomization settings and saying, I want to allow these to be anything. And all of a sudden, you've got this rhythmic beat built out of, footsteps and Foley noises and kids screaming and, you know, guitar sounds. And, you know, it just creates this thing where you can so easily, so quickly be inspired with new ideas. That's another piece that's really fun for me. And the last thing I'll say for people who are making, you know, dance music or music that's really kind of beat driven is adding effects, rises, transition sounds, hits, uh, often drones. That's something that happens instantly, you know, in real time in Audio Design Desk. And adding that stuff to your music is part of what gives your music a unique identity. Yeah. A lot of that music can sound pretty repetitive. What makes it not sound repetitive is adding these textural elements, you know, sound design elements. And if in real time you can be placing them and then instantly replacing them with alternates, again, without losing sync, you've got this really incredible sound machine tool that, you know, to my ears elevates a lot of that material. Yeah, it's it, and for anybody that might be confused by the sync points, I think that's one of the coolest things is the kind of the auto-detected sync point. So it knows where the peak of the riser is. So every time you drop a new riser in, it's in the right spot. I mean, that in itself, I'm super fast with Pro Tools and that would save me time. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's just no way around it. That saves time. I, I wanted to ask you a couple just random questions while we work our way to the close. I've talked to people that have made like big changes and you've gone through like a lot of different career things. They are all kind of tied together, but people have talked about how like making a big career change has somehow affected their identity. Like an example, there was a, I had a guest who was a touring bass player for 10 years and he loves doing production. But when he moved into production, he felt like he lost what he knew he was like, you've gone music to film, still doing film now doing software. Has this been an easy flow for you? Or have you at moments been like, ah, I really miss like being on stage. What am I doing? Am I making the right choice? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good question. Just to break it down, like as a musician, I really do love, and especially when I was doing it professionally, loved all of the pieces of it. I loved going into the studio and really refining your sound and your parts and perfecting things in that way. And then as you were able to start to use tools like Pro Tools to go, well, let's take that first verse and put it on the second verse. <laughs> that was fun too. Writing songs, of course, performing, like such a special experience, getting that 
live feedback from an audience and also the experience of playing music and just seeing people dance. Like, oh my gosh, they're moving to yeah. a thing that we're creating here. Like, you know, you're sort of one organism. Yeah. That was all really special and fun. Of course, I guess the one thing that I would say was not fun is, and probably in any industry, is egos, including my own. That, you know, many of the bands became an issue, which is why it's a little easier to be a bass player that's a hired person for X, Y, or Z. Because you come in with no ego. You have a boss. It's clear what your roles are. Yeah. As a filmmaker, at that stage, because we built our own, we didn't go work for anyone. We started our own company and the... A uh, central idea was called New Artist Alliance. The central idea was to try to give first-time filmmakers a, a get their films made. And so of the 20-whatever films we made, I think 14 of them were from first-time filmmakers. Oh, it's awesome. But you get to, as a lead producer, a lot of people don't know what producers do. Um, <laughs> and part of the reason is because they do everything and, and some of them do nothing. So there's a <laughs> wide range of what producers do. But in my role as producer, nine out of 10 times, not every single time, but almost always, you're really the person that is supporting the director's vision and getting everybody, a group of 100 people on the same page to work towards a common goal. And whether the goal is that scene, ultimately it's the whole movie, but in a sh my favorite moments on set, and by the way, as a producer, you also get the best parking spot. So I just want to <laughs> highlight that, the best parking, that's very important. But in your position on set, my favorite thing is when you would do like a steady cam shot where people are having to change lights and extras are having to run out of the way and all the departments are working together towards that one moment. You have to do 19 takes to get it right because everyone's working towards that single thing. And when you succeed, the whole group succeeds. Yeah. And that's where, especially on a film set, all the egos are gone, right? You're just doing the work. The actor's ego's not part, like the cinematographer, like everybody is just working to get, to get it right. Poor focus puller, by the way. Always on those, like, to, if they mess it up, the whole shot gets messed up and then you got to blame them. <laughs> and then, so bringing the, those worlds together as the CEO of a tech startup, you know, since COVID, I guess the best parking spot doesn't matter. <laughs> but going out and working my team with Audio Design Desk towards this common goal of building a tool that we're trying to have democratize creative audio, cinema quality sound. I think there aren't more people doing it because they think they can't, because it seems so complicated. Because looking at the existing tools out there, I'm going to have to study for five years and I'm going to have to learn these really complicated tools and where am I going to get my sounds? All of the questions that would prohibit you from doing something that's extraordinarily satisfying. The difference between you know, a, a podcast with music and sound effects and without is huge. And with a movie, if you just watch a movie or a television show, just a scene with and without footsteps, it's subtle, but you absolutely notice it. You're like, wait, why does it seem like a student film when it doesn't? And, and often like a example would be most uh, reality television doesn't have, or I'm sorry, unscripted, as they like to call it, doesn't have footsteps and you can feel it in the production value. Whereas like succession, all of those little details are in there and it's more immersive as a result. And the idea that we can make your content more immersive inspires us to continue towards that common goal. So I think that might be the thread is in a band, whether you're a bass player or the leader, on set, whether you're the producer or director on the team and on this team, 
it's always been about leading a team towards a common goal. Yeah. And in this case, you're building a tool that a lot of people can use that hopefully helps inspire them as well. Yeah, that is a common theme throughout your your story. The other one that I picked up on is problem solving and, and like identifying the problem. I think when a lot of people are trying to come up with a solution or particularly like a new idea or a product or something, I think that finding the problem is the hardest part. The solution is way easier than the problem. If you find the right problem to fix, I feel like the solution like presents itself. But most people, it's that piece that's really challenging to find, the unique problem. Yeah, and then like one thing that's been fascinating, just going into the people that are interested in startups, there's so many things that you would have no way of knowing unless you start to engage in this process. <laughs> you totally Product right. market fit. What's your total addressable market? What's your right runway? How much is it going to cost? How big is the market? How are you going to get to them? How right all all of the marketing stuff. You know what's your brand identity? Audio design desk is too complicated. You know, it's too many words. So people call it ADD, but ADD, of course, is a mental condition. So we've got, right, there's like oh, so <laughs> many things that you have to think about that wouldn't necessarily be intuitive and aren't part of the the previous skill set and sometimes aren't things that I really like doing, contracts and taxes and, you know, all of all. <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. I'm I'm sure you could do a whole nother podcast talking about the technical and business aspects of a startup. I mean, I'm, I can't, it, it's daunting, but I I dig that stuff. So if you do that podcast, make sure you email me a link to it because I'll listen to <laughs> we'll it. Do. We'll do. Yeah. Um, so before we hit our last questions, is there anything that you're able to share about the future of Audio Design Desk? Yeah. Any releases that might be out in the next month or two that you'd like to talk about? since this will potentially come out in a month or two? <laughs> sure. Right now, we're at version 1.84, which we actually just released today. Our focus for 1.89 is for streamers and beat makers. Cool. So the tools that we're making are better MIDI implementations. So you talked about how you can put sounds on your QWERTY keyboard. You'll be able to put sounds and use our randomization and replacement on your MIDI keyboard as well. In terms of... For streamers, it used to be that you would perform your sounds and then they would populate in the timeline. There was a lag. Uh, now it all happens in real time. And we've been really practicing that and showing that every day on Twitch. And so I use it as a composition tool to just start to build. And I use it with a stream deck. A stream deck is an external device that has little LED screens that you can push. And we populate those LEDs with different pictures, beat, bass, chord, line, lead, hit, drone, etc. And so you can be pushing these buttons in real time and uh, selecting a tempo and everything will, very similar to the way that Ableton works, everything will be placed so that it works in time. But then you also have your timeline in front of you so you can adjust things in real time. And all of that you can be creating in real time. And if you want to live stream it, it can be pretty satisfying because by the second time down, right, you, let's say you're making a two or three minute piece when you hit return and go back to the beginning and you're just fixing and nudging and moving things around and adding to it, you can really basically build a great piece yeah, almost in, in real time. And so that's we're coming out with features around that. I mentioned all of the Splice stuff, the ability to drag in everything from Splice and all of these different tools that are helping us incorporate into other people's tools. I want to work with your tools no matter what. We're also launching something called Spot, or right now it's called Spot, where you had mentioned, by the way, just flashing back to when you mentioned 
spotting sessions. Yeah. You described it exactly right. You used to go through the movie and you would stop at every moment when you needed a sound effect and you'd put a marker and you'd write down what sound goes there. In Audio Design Desk, when you do that, it's searching the library for the sound. You used to have to go and then find the sounds and oh, then put wow. them at the marker. Yeah. So now when, you do, when you're when you doing your spotting session, it's going in the right place at the right time. And of course, later, if you want to replace it, just hit Command-R and it'll be a different, also appropriate sound. In terms of the future, we're releasing something called Spot that is meant to work if you're a video editor or if you want to be using Audio Design Desk to create new sounds, hits to rises, or you know, for all of our sound productions tools, It'll be the least expensive version. It doesn't have all the pro features, but it'll be, you know, nine bucks a month and you'll get access to all 35,000 sounds and to, you know, a bunch of our creation tools to get uh, people's feet wet and we hope get addicted to our platform. Awesome. Very cool. Very cool. The larger roadmap, I'll just quickly say, is massive and we're on the precipice of building something that we think will be even more useful. You hear the term AI all the time, and I have a knee-jerk reaction like, wait a minute, I don't want an AI to replace me. And our entire goal with our AI is to be your assistant, is to learn from you, to identify what you're doing, and then to help you do that. And that is what's already in the program, but what's going to be really built on as we build towards version two. That's awesome. I'm, I'm definitely excited to see what you guys do. So a, a random thought that came to me while you've been telling your story is you've obviously had a lot of experience pitching things, pitching movies, pitching software ideas, pitching. Do you have any advice to like the young kid that's like a little afraid to like pitch his song or like pitch his artist or anything like, cause it's, it's definitely like a, I do. a mindset. So do you have any thoughts? Yeah. My very first pitch was to a pretty famous television producer named Norman Lear. And I had an idea for a television show called Activist. At the time, The Apprentice, you know, reality television was was coming up. And I thought, why are we celebrating these a-holes? Why don't we celebrate people who are doing good things, who are building parks, who are creating services, who there's lots of drama in there, right? You're going up against the board and you've got a vision and this you know, the people that are doing good things, activists. Right. So I go in and I get this meeting with Norman Lear and I sit down, very intimidating, bright light behind him. My, I, you know, you can't <laughs> quite see his face and he's got that great white hat. And, you know, you're invited to sit down and now you're going to go do your pitch. My first pitch ever, I was thinking I was in my 20s. And uh, I <laughs> I pitched the thing for him and he was like, yeah, it sounds like a good show. He said, you know, I, I have some advice for you. I said, what? He said, it's about your pitch. I was like, okay. He said, you should probably try smiling. <laughs> and <laughs> the subtext was, it's okay to be passionate about your idea. It's good to be passionate. You don't want to be too much but you're pitching this idea because you believe in it. And in the pitch, you got to believe in it. You got to bring that to the pitch. You know, I think that there's lots of different websites and blogs and all the, you know, YouTube videos you could watch on the structure of your pitch, which is important. Problem solution, who's behind it? How are you going to get there? What's it going to cost? How big is the market? Depending on what your, what your specific of your pitch is. But that passion goes a long way. And the one thing that I would say to people is to keep their passion inside of their pitch, to find that as the driver behind it. That's great advice. Oh, I love it. This has been great. I, I got a couple closing questions that I hit everybody with. So we'll do those on our way out. One of the things I've been trying to do this season is to kind of highlight some of the issues with crediting 
in the music industry. And I think you might have an interesting opinion on this since you have worked in film where credits seem to be inherent in the production process. And somehow in music, credits can sometimes be optional depending on the situation that you're working in. So do you have any thoughts on how the music industry can kind of shift that mindset a little bit? I do. And it is a big part of what we're building right now with um, a new brand of something we're building called Sound On. So Sound On, which should be released end of January, maybe early February, cool. is a platform where musicians can come in. It's sort of similar to Splice or Envato, where you know we basically take a bunch of the money, and if you're a musician that contributes to the platform as your thing is used, you get paid by the people that are using it. But you also need to be credited. One thing that I don't understand why no other program has it is making a cue sheet for you. I mean, it would be the easiest thing, I feel like, for... Pro Tools to do that, but they don't. In our case, you're able to instantly print a cue sheet. And of course, everyone that's a part of that piece of music is credited. Wow, that's great. The industry is changing. I mean, when when I was coming up, and in fact, one of my best friends, a guy named Alec Puro, who has a big company called Gramascope, I think they have 30 television shows that they score, something like that. Their model is built on that old model of publishing royalties, that whole much larger model in terms of a single check. That single check comes in, you've got that 30-second queue, and you've got somewhere between five and 50 grand. Right. <laughs> that model is dying, though, because now we have 50 million people instead of five networks who are all making content that need to be populating TikTok and YouTube and all of the rest. Yeah. So there's an interesting thing happening there because as you're able to make your music— and put it onto these platforms and get paid. Yes, it is pennies per use, but there's 50 million potential uses. <laughs> and you're allowed to be more in charge of your own career because you're not like, most of the time you don't get that job, right? You work yeah. a two weeks or three weeks to build that queue for that thing, but there's 200 other musicians <laughs> that are doing it too. And so you've got a one in 200 chance of being selected. This way, all of your music, every single thing that you've done can be out there working for you and giving you money. And I think that credit, as you asked, is a big part of it because there's so much competition. There's 15 million you know, musicians out there and all of them are trying to be seen. And so part of, I think, what's important is that you get credited on that YouTube video, on that TikTok, on each of those things because that's how you can build your own career, or that's how that, you know, little TikTok show, little YouTube show, as they become a big show, they're going to keep coming back to you because you're the person that built a part of the identity. Yeah. I just want to quickly say with every single big director that I can think of, whether it's Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino, the central thing of what makes you know it's a Tarantino film, know it's a Scorsese film is the music. If it's the Rolling Stones, right, it's Martin Scorsese. <laughs> if it's like some super cool, obscure funk thing from the 70s, it's, it's right, it's Quentin Tarantino. And that's the same with Wes Anderson. It's, you know, Spike Jones, like all the Star Wars movies. It's the music that gives them that identity. And so that's a piece of what I think musicians are going to be able to bank on as their music is used in more and more things. Some of those things will become popular but those filmmakers are going to need you because they're going to need more music from you because their identity was created by your music. And that's why you need credit. I almost didn't ask you that question, so I'm super glad I did because <laughs> that was that's a really great angle for... I never thought of it like that where you think about there being so many creators on Twitch and 
everybody's got a YouTube channel and everybody's using like, you know, these micro licenses. There's so many opportunities, but you're right. Like if somebody hits it, you've become part of their brand at that point. It's yeah. really, really fascinating. That's great. And then they're going to need bespoke stuff. Yeah. I mean, they can't just stick with these libraries where everybody's using the same thing. I think that's the future of, you know, as, as an individual musician, how you can make money. Yeah. Because the, the old model in the publishing and the, and the cue sheets coming from, you know, networks and stuff is, uh, it is archaic in the fact that it's, you know, it's not done automatically coming from a person that has missed out on payments at times. This <laughs> is mind-blowing, you know? Sure. So last two questions. These two questions I close every show with. The first one is, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're growing up, I don't know how many people felt this way, but for me growing up, success was defined largely by my parents and my community's definition of success. And that had to do a lot with kind of other people, other people's view on what you're doing. Like, what is the visibility to what you're doing? What are sort of the community's feedback? How well liked is it by the community? Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. It seems to me that there's, you know, only a couple of ways of defining success at the end of the day. One of them's money. I've never been somebody that has felt better about myself or what I'm doing based on what the paycheck is. I probably would have more money if I did, but it's just not the motivator for me. And so I think as I graduated from adolescence into adulthood, the definition of success really became about Am I proud of the work that I'm doing? Do I feel good about this work? You mentioned cheap thrills in the in the opening, and they call us monsters. I made a lot of movies. They're not all great. It's impossible to have all your movies be great. <laughs> there isn't a chemical form that you can put together to make a great movie because there's so many different pieces uh, that all need to work. But that movie, Cheap Thrills, that you mentioned, and that movie, They Call Us Monsters, I'm really proud of. And so going out and promoting those movies was so easy. Going out and promoting the movies, you're talking about the definition of success. Both of those movies happened to also do well financially, but that is not what made me feel successful about them. What made me feel successful was having my own reaction and then seeing the audience had that same reaction. Yeah. And so for me, that is the evolving definition of success has to do with how I feel about what I'm doing. And that is what's kept me with audio designers. It's hard to start a new platform. And you asked at the beginning, it's, it's this is the hardest thing I've ever done by far. But every time that I present the product, every time the person on the other side, and I do it all day, every day, their jaw drops. They can't believe what they're seeing. This is magic. It's like when I saw the iPhone for the first time, I was like, I was so annoying about it. I had it with me at all times. I was like, oh, look at this. Like for weeks, I was like, look at what this is. It was, it was this magical thing. That's how I feel about Audio Design Desk. And I still feel that way. And that is why, you know, yes, I'd like to make more, more money at it and build a sustainable company, of course. Yeah. But the definition of success has to do more with how I feel about the things now. That's great. I love that. I love the, you know, I think a problem that a lot of people hit and uh, I've definitely, I've had it is, you know, trying to fit into some other mold of success. And I never really thought about it as like, when you're a kid, your community has kind of inadvertently given you 
a mold that you'll try to fit into until you realize that you don't have to. And it's not a negative knock on, you know, everybody raises a kid and uh, everybody has a community. But yeah, that that is like an inherent thing that one day in your life you need to get over that thing that like what you grew up around for like, you know, the, your most influential 18 years isn't necessarily what you have to worry about fitting into, which is really a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I think they do a good job of depicting this, just really quick tangent. Uh, yeah. well, you, you mentioned there might be tangents. Always. Uh, in in Succession, those kids, the, I don't know if you watch that show, but I've I think some, it's yeah. the best thing on television. And especially this season, the way that they're showing you the values of the kids who are now kind of all at war with one another as it stemmed from the parent is so cool to watch. And part of why is because it feels true. Like they never... <laughs> They never redefined success for themselves. It was always that lure of a billion dollars and visibility yeah. uh, without actually earning it, you know, in the case of the kids. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't. A lot of people just keep that thing, which is fine, right? Like a lot of people are like, that's my parents' values. That's the value system that I was shown and taught. And they stick with that. And, you know, if that makes them feel warm and fuzzy, awesome. In my case, <laughs> I definitely felt, especially through my early 20s, the pressure of what's the latest review on, you know, my latest album or what is the external view of what I'm doing? Yeah. And ultimately, it made me feel kind of icky inside. Yeah. Like fighting for that, you're never going to make the great thing because you're trying to please somebody you don't know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I think, I think artists and musicians, especially if you came from a family that maybe was uh, lawyer, doctor, somebody that they're not in the arts and then you're choosing arts. I think those are the people that really butt heads with it the most because they are, they're in like a whole different road. <laughs> so the sooner you realize you're on a different freeway, the, the, the better off you'll be. Not that you can't, you know, share values of a, a lawyer when you're a guitar player, but sure. anyway, we digress. The final question is, uh, what right now is your current biggest goal that you can share with us? And what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it? I would like to take this question in a couple of parts. My current goal for the company is more visibility. It's a noisy space, forgive the pun, where everybody's saying that they've got a groundbreaking product. And so it becomes really hard to say, no, 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 we're the ones that do have it. And that's we talked at the beginning about all these awards and all these reviews, which feels great. I do like it, right? I do like getting those, <laughs> right? As much as we just talked about success, I still like it. But it's not what I'm working for. But it's hard to have people try a new thing. We have two different types of people. One type is saying, you're going to get me fired. I'm going to lose my job because it's so easy and so much faster with your tool. And so they don't really want to use this tool. And the other type of person is, is going like, well, I'm used to what I'm doing. Like, you know what? I don't want to have to take a half hour, an hour to learn a new tool. Like, I, I'm too busy. But if they did believe that this was a groundbreaking tool, if we could find that right language or that right spokesperson or that right, whatever that thing is, you know, we're working with a lot of influencers now who we've shown the product who feel that it's going to enhance their work. And so hopefully that'll be a way of helping us get out there so the number one goal for me with this company and this product is to break through the noise so that we're seen, so that people will try us, so that they'll give us a chance, both as the company where we want to be real people that are working for our clients, trying to be a useful tool to help them be able to take on more work in a world where 
wages are going down and yet there's a lot of work if you can work for $50. Well, you can if it takes 25 minutes to do the thing instead of six hours. And that's really how it is in Audio Design Desk. And then in terms of my personal life, I think finding balance is always something to be, that's kind of constantly a moving target. We're all, or at least I'm sure you and I are on Zoom so much. We spend so much time in these meetings, kind of living this virtual life. And then I step out here, I have a four-year-old and an 11-year-old who are definitely the favorite things, as much as I love Audio Design Desk, (laughs) in my life. And uh, so finding that balance uh, would be another goal for me. Amazing. You're preaching to the choir on on balance. It's uh, That's me and everybody who listens to this show. Everybody's always trying to get balance. I would love to keep chatting. I just, you know, sincerely, I think what you guys are doing is really cool. And uh, this has been a, an awesome hang for me. I hope I hope you enjoyed it as well. Me too. Do you want to share with people a website or any anything where they can find you guys? It'll all be in the show notes as well. Yeah, um, our website is add.app, ad.app. Or you can go to audiodesigndesk.com, but that's a real mouthful. And soon there will also be sound on, sound-on.com, where we are also integrating a musical community into the application. So you'll be able to make music, distribute music, collaborate with other people, build stuff. You put something out there, you go to sleep the next morning, there's 30 different parts for your thing, which other people can use. You can make money off of it. All of that is what we're building towards. And so sound-on.com and add.app are the two things I would share with your listeners. Awesome. Well, Gabe, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, this has been great. So that's it for episode 61. Thanks to Gabe for coming on the show. I encourage all of you to go check out Audio Design Desk. It really is a totally unique approach to a DAW. And obviously, thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider dropping us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing the show with a friend. And if you want to support the show even further, please consider contributing to our Patreon. Any support there is also greatly appreciated. Finally, don't forget to join us over at completeproducer.net. There's lots of great hangs going on over there. And on that note, I will see you all next time.